Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Jonathan Stone, co-founder, president, and creative director of Rocket Songs. Rocket Songs is an online music marketplace where recording artists can listen to and select completely original tracks from a database of professionally curated songs written by the best songwriters and producers working today. Artists choose a range of options to suit their needs, from a simple license all the way through an exclusive window with fully produced track stems. Jonathan is third generation music industry with a direct connection to the earliest days of the modern music business. Learn about that and a great primer on music publishing, all of which he shared in our talk. I'm grateful to be able to bring you my discussion with Jonathan Stone. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm hunkered down just uh, south of Seattle. And okay. uh, yeah, and so we're in the same, at least we're in the same time zone. Yeah. So uh, you're I'm, I'm assuming L.A. or let me not I assume. Am. Yeah, I am. In, I am in Southern California, Los Angeles, greater L.A. Yeah. And uh, how are things there and how are you and yours? Pre- pretty good. You know, we, we hear a lot of crazy stuff about Seattle. Yeah. yeah. It's been a crazy <laughs> the past, year. The past year. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and same same here. But all, everything's good. You know, I got. I got vaccinated. <laughs> oh, did you? Did you? Good. I vaccinated. So, so that's, so that's done. And, um, but everything, you know, everything's all right. My family's good and I'm good. And, you know, that's all you can, you can hope for. I, I, uh, you know, I, uh, had a couple friends, I lost a couple friends through all this oh. older, older friends of mine. And so that's, uh, that's really, that's really a drag. You know, that's a bummer. But, you know, for the most part, you know, looks like we may have turned the corner on all this stuff. You know, I hope so. Yeah, I have to ask. I, you know, I woke up this morning to um, there was a headline on the New York Times uh, app that said California just passed 50,000 COVID fatalities. And, you know, there's been all this noise in the last couple of days about recalling Newsom and, you know, just all that that stuff. And um it seems as though so if you if you accept that you know 50,000 confirmed deaths is about 10% of the US fatalities but California has like 12 or 13% of the population it would seem to me that despite all the tragedy California is actually doing better if you've got 12% of the population and 10% of the fatalities so i'm not sure what the what the rub is but the takeaway is, yeah, well, it just depends on who's, you know, who's crunching the numbers, so to speak. But yeah, that's, that's all very true. I mean, I, I've said that from the very beginning when all of this started, I was, I always, at the end of the day, whenever I was sort of tracking this stuff, I'd always just look at the deaths. There was so much information. There's so much data that they, they give you for all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, how many people are hospitalized? How many people are tested positive? How many people are recover after testing? You know, all that. At the end of the day, I just looked at the deaths. And because um, after all, that's, you know, I mean, the rest of it's awful. But I mean, you know, you, you want, can you pull out of this thing? And, and it was very slow at the beginning. I mean, we were really doing great. And, and then they kind of opened things up and it just exploded and went the other direction. So, you know. I think it's been pretty much, you know, pretty much uh, uh, 
the same. It's just, it all happens at different times. You know, hotspots, they happen at different times. Yeah. And, uh, and so right now we're definitely on the downswing and I think we eventually, everybody really got it. I, I just, from the minute this happened and then we would get on to whatever, but I mean, but the minute this happened, I started wearing a mask. And regardless of what anybody said about, well, you know, don't worry about masks right now because we need those for our, our nurses and our doctors. And there's such a shortage. I wore a bandana and I did it from the very beginning. And, uh, and I, I always, every flu season, sometimes I would do that anyway. Yeah. Like in Japan, that's a regular thing. Yeah. In Japan, in the flu season, everyone wears a mask. It's not like a big deal. So I, I did, I've done that for like over like a year now. And so, I think um, that really, I never understood why everybody said, well, you don't have to do that. At the beginning, you know, if you recall, they said, you know, it's, it's mostly contact, it's touching things. Now it's just the opposite. It's aerosol and touching's not that big a deal. So, you know, I'll probably wear a mask the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's funny you know that I mean? you say that. Yeah, yeah. I, I probably will. I mean, at least whenever I go to the store, airports and. Yeah. You know, I, it's not that much of an inconvenience to me. I, I do this and I have another, and it's not that big a deal. And yeah. it makes a difference. That's right. That's right. It's sort of, it's one of those things of like, why not? It doesn't really harm me in any way. So why not? <laughs> I, I, I kind of, you know, I, I don't have a problem with it, but anyway, yeah. it, hopefully we'll get through all that stuff, yeah. you know? So, um, you're in LA now, and I, I do want to talk. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your journey as well as um, as well as rocket songs. But um, where are you sure. from originally? What's what's your? Let's start I'm there. From, yeah, I'm from I'm from Los Angeles originally. Oh wow! Born and raised here. I'm a first generation, you know, Southern Californian, and that's kind of unusual itself because there's so many transplanted people here. There's people here from from everywhere, but I was born and raised here. So I I lived in Nashville for six years. Uh, but other than that, for the most part, I've always been here. I've always yeah. been here. So, yeah. Wow. And um, what was your uh, what was your first entrance into sort of music and media and entertainment? Like professionally, how did you how did you get started? Well, uh, my father, uh, actually, my grandfather was in the music was in the music industry around the turn of the century, and then my father became a, a pretty well known uh, uh, entertainer and record producer and songwriter uh, in the in the 40s and 50s and early 60s. And so we were really raised in it. We were in Southern California. He had a television show. He was kind of like a, a, a country music Ed Sullivan, for lack of a better way to, to put it. If you if you know who I am, you, I'm sure you know who of Ed course. Sullivan. Of course, yeah, of course. Uh, and, uh, and so he had a variety show uh, from 1950 to 1960 on Channel 5, KTLA TV called... Cliffy Stone's hometown jamboree. So if you Google Cliffy Stone, you'll find out everything you need to know. But he went on to be, uh, he produced and managed Ernie Ford, who was oh, a, sure. wrote the, uh, had a big hit with the song 16 Tons, which my father produced that. And my father was head of A&R for Capitol Records for years. And uh, he was uh, sort of the king of country music on the West Coast. He discovered a lot of these guys out of Bakersfield. Uh, Merle Haggard, Buck Owens, he's a real, uh, an iconic country music executive, 
and producer and music publisher. Mm -hmm. And consequently, he's in the Country Music Hall of Fame. So that's sort of my entry into it. And then my whole family's in the music industry. My brother is a country music recording artist in a group called Highway 101. My other brother was a, also a record producer who produced a lot of hit records. And, uh, and so I ended up just going, in, going into the business and was just raised with it and uh, specifically went into the music publishing business uh, in the early 80s. Uh, as, a, as an executive. I want to I want to talk about that uh, in a minute, but I have to ask what was the um, uh, what's the element? What was the music business at the turn of the last century that your grandfather was in? That's fascinating to me. Well, he was uh, he was a very fascinating guy. He went by the name of Herman the Hermit. And uh, and that right. And then later on, he always joked uh, he, he died like in 1962 or something. He was born in born in 1880. Uh, but I knew him briefly. And, uh, but he always used to joke about how that, that band out of England, or, you know, or my mother, actually, no, it was my mother that joked that, that the Herman, you know, that band stole his name, Herman's Hermits, right? Uh, but uh, he was uh, an entertainer. Uh, he also uh, ultimately ended up going into the movie industry, the movie business as an animal trainer. But he <laughs> was uh, primarily an entertainer and, it, and had something called, uh, you know, he was Herman the Hermit and he had a one man band. And what he would do is there would be all these instruments that he had rigged up behind him and he would sit and play songs playing like 10 different instruments all at the same time. Wow. So he was an entertainer and, um, and uh, a banjo player and sort of became a studio musician, early, early on studio musician for banjo. And, and that's how my father got introduced into it. And my father uh, ultimately started playing the stand up bass and became a, a, a pretty well-known uh, studio musician with the, with the bass guitar. So that's really what, uh, what his entry into the music business was as well. Wow, that's fascinating. Did your grandfather, um, is, that the, is that the leg of your family that wound up in LA or was it your dad that came to LA? Both, uh, both. Uh, my mom and dad met in, in really in, in, in Los Angeles and my mother, um, actually my mother, was born in i think she was born in in los angeles and she went to hollywood high school and she was a singer uh in a in a in a band called the aristocrats of all names hmm. and uh uh and that's how she met my dad they were both sort of like musicians i mean that's, this uh, there's no that this was this was your destiny yeah <laughs> there's no escaping it yeah yeah at one point i was i was uh, considering like you know uh, going into like uh, coaching or you know, i was a big sports guy and i played football and all that stuff and i i always sort of envisioned myself you know wanting to be a football coach and all that but i it was really um uh yeah when i was i started when i was actually when i was 18 wow yeah i, I was i was thinking like how does a teenager who grows up in the music uh business rebel against their parents and it's like you become an accountant or <laughs> well, you're, already, you're already the coolest guy in town all the kids went over to our house that was my parents were very liberal and you know we had this property and you know all the, all the guys would would come and hang out and um you know it was it was great it's exactly what i what i always wanted to do you know i always really wanted to to go into that and go into that field one way or another and my dad had a very successful music publishing company back when publishing was really i mean out, out, out of all the things that he was doing on the side he sort of started this music publishing company and would just kind of start collecting all these songs these records that were coming out these singles that he was producing for capital nobody kind of 
Uh, publishers were kind of a necessary evil back then. Nobody really quite knew what they did. They knew what record companies did. They were just sort of getting their heads around that. But then there was this music publishing thing where it's like, well, yeah, I mean, somebody has to collect that royalty. Well, the record company doesn't do that. Well, I guess I better go find a publisher and hope they'll publish me. Kind of like the way people feel about a book publisher. Mm -hmm. But in truth, uh, book publishers are kind of like a record company. You know what I mean? It's like a combined right. Yeah. You go to a book publisher to get your, to get your book released and distributed. You don't go to a publisher, music publisher, to get your record distributed. You go to a music publisher to, uh, you know, for a lot of different reasons, but really to protect the copyright and to collect those, those, uh, uh, those royalties that are due songwriters and publishers as a result of the song being performed and sold and streamed and blah, blah, blah. So he sort of started that business kind of as a sort of a side business to all the other stuff and ended up being the biggest thing, the most success. He published so many hits and then ended up selling that company. And I ended up going to work for the company he sold it to. And then I worked for them for a number of years. And then I sort of moved, went on along my journey. But that was my, my introduction to it for sure. And it was always just great. I always just thought, you know, it was great to listen to songs. You know, I would listen to songs from his catalog or songs that some of his writers had written. And this is when I was late. This is when I was like 17, 18 and, and cast them. And it was kind of fun to me to say, mm. okay, gee, this would be a great song for Charlie Rich. You know, or this would be a great song. This would be a great, a lot of his stuff was country or this would, this would have been a great song for, you know, whoever, you know? And so I always, or our, it was, it was kind of fun for me to hear songs that he had before they were hits. You know, you all we ever hear when we grow up are songs that have already been released. If you're not in the music industry, you, you and, and back in those days, you know, you, you might hear somebody, you might go to a club and you might hear somebody perform. But for the most part, you just heard stuff that was already recorded or released. You never, you never heard anybody's demos. Right. You didn't hear people's demos. Now everybody's demos are everywhere. But, you know, so it was really fun to me to hear songs that it, before they were hits and all that. I really gravitated to that you know, right away. And so, um, and then from there, they, they offered, they opened up an office in Nashville and offered me a job down there. So I went down there and that was really when it started for me uh, actively and really have been a publisher ever since yeah. in one way or another, along with everything else, the other things I've done. Well, just for the, just for the benefit of listeners, um, sure. let's, let's do a, let's do a little bit, uh, maybe just a couple minutes on sort of the one-on-one of publishing. So you talked sure. about how music is different from book publishing and um, why is it that why why is that true? Is, is it the is it the split between the historical split between the writer and the performer? So they they need separate rights. Like why 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 is there a need for a publisher in music that is different from a publisher in in books? Yeah, it's a just it's it's a different. It was just you know you know Lawrence. It was just set up differently at the beginning. You know, that's just for and why that happened once again around the turn of the century when all the stuff, when the music business sort of got going, which was around the turn of the century, the business part of it. And, you know, why it got set up that way, I've often actually I've, I've kind of wondered, but there are really and, and the, uh, the quick way to explain it is there are really, uh, you know, there's really four income streams when you talk about a record and and where and what happens to a dollar. I don't want to get too, uh, too uh, educational here, but when a dollar is earned, fifty cents, for the most part, for every for every for every dollar generally 
for every I should I should qualify that by saying for every publishing dollar that's earned a portion of that 50 cents goes to the writer and the 50 cents goes to the publisher and that's just how that's that's how that's split up and um, and it's the same for uh, for a record company for the most part when, when whenever any income is generated to for a record company that money is split accordingly between the record company and the artist according to whatever their contract is mm -hmm. and so that's just the way that's just the way that it was set up and it was set up to where publishers would collect on behalf of writers uh, on behalf of the songwriter and record companies would collect uh, on behalf of the artist and uh, in some cases they're all the same thing I mean these days like you're totally self-contained artists these days they do uh, they're they're the record company they're the artist they're the publisher and they're the songwriter. They own everything when they start. And so they're, they're really uh, doing everything themselves. Um, but, but back in the day, it was all separated. And as, and as you go along your journey, you sort of sometimes you'll, you know, uh, sell some of these rights to other people or you'll decide to do a deal with a record company or you'll, you'll decide to sell some of your rights to a music publishing company. And, uh, and then you you negotiate those contracts accordingly. Yeah. Um, but when you start and when you first write a song, you control it all. And, and so it's all become, become uh, you know, very uh, uh, DIY-ish these days. But up until like 15, 20 years ago, or maybe even 10, 15 years ago, um, you really needed help for all of that stuff, you know. And who does a publisher collect from? They collect from everybody. I mean, they collect anybody. Anytime a song is performed anywhere, somebody's got to collect that income. So whenever, whenever a song is uh, on a, a television show, whenever it's in a movie, whenever it's uh, now at, any, at this point in YouTube or anywhere else, there's income that's generated from that. And the publisher has to collect that, collect those royalties. Uh, you have to pay a, a, a royalty for the performance or the use of any of any song per se. And to the extent that you're using the master recording as well, there's a royalty that you'd have to pay to the recording company and to the artist of that song. If it's all the same, then it's something we call one stop. And that's where somebody can really just buy a license that covers all of those, all of those uh, uh, approvals. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, What's the uh, what's the difference between um, sort of a statutory license? Like what what licensing is statutory and what has to be negotiable per use? Well, generally speaking, and all of this is kind of a moving target, but generally speaking, generally speaking, all mechanical licenses are are pretty much licensed on a statutory basis. In other words, anybody can record anything. And anybody can get a mechanical license to record anything. It's actually, it's actually, you know, in the copyright law that you can't deny somebody. Once a song's been publicly performed, it's available to the public to use. You have to get a license to use it, but you still cannot be denied that license unless you're trying to materially change the song in any way. So anybody can record a Beatles song. The Beatles can't stop you. They literally, legally, cannot stop you. But you still have to get a license if you're going to release it. Ultimately you would have to get a, what's called a mechanical license from whoever their publisher is. And that just kind of happens by rote. It's just kind of a, a 
a mechanical th- a mechanical process that just kind of happens and you just request the license from various agencies or, or whoever is your record company. Usually it's whoever the record company is that's deciding to put out Lawrence's record that you just recorded. They will, they know how to request the quote unquote, uh, the mechanical license from the publisher. So they kind of handle that for you. These days, there's lots of online companies that'll take care of that, but you still have to do that. And so the the mechanical license is essentially the piece of plumbing that connects the recording back to the songwriter so that the money can flow? For sales, for the sale of something, not for the performance of something. For the performance of something, there's companies I'm sure you're aware or have heard of called ASCAP and BMI. Mm -hmm. They collect, let's call it old, old school, I can't help it, but radio you know, radio income or performance income. ASCAP and BMI collect that on behalf of the music publisher. And a company like a Harry Fox company collects the mechanical or the streaming income. Now, on top of all of that is along come, you know, Spotify and TuneCore and iTunes and CD Baby and everybody else. And now everyone's kind of got their finger in the pot and everybody's kind of collecting streaming. And streaming is kind of like the new version of mechanical income. But streaming is kind of a combination of mechanical and performance. It's kind of both, you know, in terms of how the royalties are paid and how they're managed. And it's a little complicated. And and so everybody kind of collects that now. There are certain companies that just do mechanical. There are certain companies that just do performance. And everyone's kind of trying to get their hands in the streaming. Um, So um, so it's a it's a it's a little it's a little uh, a little. little bit like the wild west right now but the publisher helps you sort of um uh especially these days really kind of manage those and if it's not the publisher you can find someone online to do it for you too it's a pretty good company so it's it's sort of a classic like river of nickels kind of business with a lot of little catch basins along the way taking little pieces but ultimately half of that money more or less makes it to the makes it to the creator yeah yeah, more or less. As long as you, if you've retained your rights, a hundred percent of it is. But you have to, you have to get somehow. You've got to get your music out there. So how are you going to do that? Now, if you get a major record deal, you're going to give away some of those rights. If you need money to live on in the meantime, you may go to a publisher to get like be put on draw. Yeah, and to be you know get a writer's deal, right? A writer's deal. And so that's really what publishers do these days. The major, there's lots of, there's about uh, probably eight or nine major publishing companies and many independent publishing companies who still to this, to this day have staffs of writers, much like a TV show would. Yeah. They have writer staffs, right? You hear about everyone very familiar with that, but publishers will do that and have uh, writers and young writer producers they think are talented and they'll put them on salary. And for that, they get half of the ownership of their publishing or sometimes even more and they take a piece of their publishing rights so that when the song's a hit, the publisher recoups the advances they were giving them first to live. They, re- they recoup that advance, that $50,000 I gave Lawrence for, the, for that year, which would be pretty good for a beginning writer. I'm going to recoup that from the Bruno Mars hit we just had that you co-wrote, and then you'll start getting your royalties. But your performance income as a writer, you'll always collect directly from ASCAP and BMI. So it's... Uh, the publisher basically serves to sort of like it's the minor leagues. Yeah. Another way of putting it. They yeah. kind of, they're kind of there before the record company for the most part. Nowadays, everyone's doing everything, but a good way to learn it is to think about it in the way it was 
10, 15 years ago, because that gives you sort of the foundation. And then the, how it's evolved is kind of a different story, but the foundation is still there as to how it really works. And uh, the publishers sort of find talent, develop talent, they develop artists, they develop songwriters, they pay for the studios, which nowadays a lot of people have their own studio. So, but they'll maybe buy equipment for the writers, they'll support them. And the writers will have the luxury of not having to go drive for Uber now. <laughs> in the old days you were a waiter. Nowadays you drive for Uber to make extra money. And they can spend all their time in the studio and writing and collaborating and working on projects, hoping that they get a hit and hoping they become the next Diane Warren or Bruno Mars or whoever they're trying to be. And so the publisher gives them a salary to do that. And, and so that's what the publisher could do. So they're kind of like the minor leagues and the publishers will take these folks that they've been developing and they'll pitch them to the record companies, either as artists or as producers. Hey, I've got a great young producer. He should work on this next Beyonce record, Joe, at, at uh, Universal Republic. And um, hey, give him a shot. So the publisher does all those things. A good yeah. publisher does all those things. All right. Well, I have one more question on sort of the nerdiness part of the publishing side, and I'll come back to your story. Oh, yeah. are, are, are publishing deals generally cleaner and more straightforward than record deals in terms of the things that come off the top, the deductions, the allowances? Um, I, I'm struggling to see how they could be really anything other than straightforward. I give you a draw or I give you an advance. You deliver some copyrights. We go exploit them. I recoup the upfront money I gave you and we split the rest. Like, is there, is yeah, it more complicated? Got, that's, than that? Yeah. I will tell you this, that publishing agreements have become more, uh, in some sense have become more complicated than record companies, than record deals. Wow. Um, uh, and a couple of reasons for that. One is that everything has just become, everyone's become a little more sophisticated as to the value of publishing. And um, it used to be, you would sign somebody and it would sort of be just your example. But now there are reversions and people want copyright reversions. They want reversions on their copyrights. And there's a whole legal thing that happens with that now. Okay, I'm going to give you this money. In the old days, I would maybe publish that song for the life of the copyright, which was just fine. There's nothing wrong with that if I gave you the money to start your career. But then if a writer hits a certain level of success, he wants those copyrights back. So he wants a reversion clause. So he's maybe retained 50% of his publishing. He gave away 50% of his publishing to get this salary. But if he ends up in five years being uh, Diane Warren, he would like the opportunity to either buy his songs back or just have them returned back to him if he's recouped all the advances that have been given to him. Yeah. It's just a reversion clause. It's pretty, and, and there's a lot of artists that have that now where they want to get owners of their um, uh you know, ownerships of their masters back, reversions. So it gets very complicated, but they're, they're sort of similar now. I mean, publishing agreements, re recording contracts uh, on some level uh, became a little more complicated when uh, uh, record companies started, I'm trying to think of the word, but they started sort of uh, presenting um, uh, agreements to artists that were that were even more inclusive of all of their rights. They wanted a piece of the touring. They wanted a piece of everything. The 360 deals, yeah. The 360, thank you. I was yeah. trying to think of the term. 360 deals. They, they started that about 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. And so that got everybody all shook up because, you know, uh, that all kind of started because everybody was getting music for free on the web and the record company's business was going in the tank because they didn't pay attention to Napster and file sharing and all that 
stuff, right? So they started their earnings in the dumper. So they said, okay, we're going to do 360 deals because that's where everybody's making their money now. So we want a piece of your, we want a piece of your, so their deals got very complicated. And now I think it's kind of like, it's turned back away from that now because, you know, they're starting to figure out sort of the licensing, the licensing models that work the best. And, you know, for all the pissing and moaning that the record business did for the, for the last 10 years, they're starting to make gobs of money. They're printing it, printing it. It's incredible. Right now they're printing it. They're just printing it because, you know, it isn't an album business anymore, but a single, a hit single these days, it's unbelievable. The well, it starts to look more like publishing, right? It's just this, it's yeah. just almost an annuity. Streaming yeah. becomes an annuity. Yeah. I mean, a, a hit song, you know, 10 years ago, if you had a hit, hit pop single, it maybe was a million five, all income. Uh, publishing income is maybe a million and a half, maybe 2 million. Now it can be, if you have a hit song, one hit song can be generating $20 million in just publishing revenue. That's, that's exciting. Insane. That's crazy. But I mean, that's a big hit. I mean, that's like Uptown Funk yeah. type hit yeah. and um, or, or, or a big Taylor Swift hit or something. Um, so that's a gigantic hit and not very few things are like that. But yeah. I mean, the money is, is and, and primarily because they finally did figure out the license. They finally made YouTube pay. They finally made Spotify pay. They finally, because those guys all started out just using everything for free. Yeah. Yeah. Is the notion of public domain effectively dead in this country? Will, will, is, is, will nothing ever make it to public domain at this point? Yeah, I think so. And that's just I mean, the corporate interest. There's too much. I've always money. been confused by it. You know, to me, public domain is just our things that have uh, are songs that are so old that the, the life of copyright has expired and anybody can use them. So that's kind of like nursery rhymes and things like that. But there's a twist to it to where you can now um, like copyright arrangements of things. Like the copyright might be expiring, the original copyright might be expiring, but now there's a way of actually extending that because they, so many people were living beyond life of copyright that something would go into the public domain and the author would stop making money. And the guy was maybe 75 years old and he wrote the song when he was 20 and the life of copyright was 56 years or something. And now the guy in his heirs, he was all of a sudden it goes into the public domain and he's not making any money. So they changed it. So now you could get an additional 25 years on top of the life of the copyright. And so, uh, you know, uh, just about everything now is, you know, there, there are things that are, uh, it's not public domain, but what's that common law? There's a common law clause that people. Uh, oh gosh, I can't. Is this the thing where is this why we're seeing like those those one day YouTube dump releases of like outtakes and and albums where you know Dylan's done it now a few times and uh, I think the Stones have done it where they just put or Abco does it on behalf of the Stones they dump a bunch of audio onto YouTube for 24 hours and then pull it down and they can say they released the material and it'll be you know everything from 1968 that's in the vault. They just they just release it for twenty four hours and pull it out, um, probably. And that's having some effect of like you know um, extending the copyright protection for another. Absolutely, yeah, probably probably so. I, absolutely right. And you know, there's a whole um, uh, angle on this stuff uh, once it's been publicly performed. Once yeah. something's been publicly publicly performed, how the copyright laws can change with it and the way that people can license something, how it changes. Yeah. So um, that makes sense, you know, yeah. for somebody to be able to. So what, 
What, what, what aspect of the publishing business was your either specialty or, or what you were drawn to? Like, you know, of the different roles, were you, you know, you talked early on about how you kind of liked the A&R or the, you know, ooh, this song for this artist. Um, were you into the sort of the deal? Was that interesting to you? Like, would, would you, publishing is one of those areas where I, I, I love it because it's really where the business and the creative really hits the road in a practical way. Um, yeah. But I wonder what, what was your, what was your affinity? Um, it was really, um, it, where I sort of made my bones, so to speak, what, what my, my biggest area of success was finding and developing and nurturing new talent. Hmm. That's what I enjoyed more than anything. It wasn't so much trying to sign the next, uh, big band, the next Nirvana or the next, you know, there were a lot of A&R guys at publishing companies that that's what their whole focus was. I'm just going to go find the next band. I'm going to find that band before it breaks and I'm going to sign into a publishing deal and they become Nickelback or who the list goes on. Um, I did that. Uh, but uh, what I enjoyed the most was finding somebody that was brand new, seeing their talent and helping them sort of just get to the next level, get to the next level of your career. Here you are, you're great, you're talented. You're also most of them at that at the point when I was getting involved, they would be hyphenates. They wouldn't just be writer writers. They would either be a writer artist or they would be a writer producer. Some of them at the beginning were writer writers, but writer writers got a tough way to go, man. If yeah. you're just a writer writer, you're totally dependent on everybody else producing your music and totally dependent on somebody else singing your music. And if you don't have your own record, I mean, you're just like, man, that's like a that's a tough deal these days. Back in the day, there were a lot of people that were writer writers, um, but nowadays you, you you probably couldn't even get a deal unless you were unless you're a brilliant lyricist because people really need great lyricists. Uh, if I were to give any advice to anybody these days, I would say, you know, I mean, you you got to work on your production chops, but people are always always looking for somebody always looking for great lyricists. So that was what I like to do. I like to find find sign and develop great new talent. And then just help them get to the next level, help them get to the next place, whatever that is. And I didn't really necessarily uh, uh, equate that with having a big hit song as much as it was just, were they progressing? Were they getting to the next stage? Were they writing better songs? Were they becoming better producers? And if they were, I would stay with them. Whether they had success or not, I would just stay with them. Um, and, um, uh, and so that's, that's what I, I, I had a lot of success with that and, um, not as much as sort of signing the next big band. Um, but, but that was my thing. That was my whole thing. I built a whole career on that, finding new people and discovering talent. I have to ask when I hear you say that coupled with some of the things you said before, so publishers are essentially the, the farm league. They're creating a big funnel of bringing in talent, capturing a lot of talent, developing it, nurturing yes. it. Sounds expensive and time consuming. But I have to ask, when you get, as the funnel narrows, are there really very few great songs? Or is there a lot of great music out there? Um, is there plenty to choose from? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, and it leads us to, to, to the company I'm working with now. But um, it's, um, there are a lot of great songs out there. There are a lot of great songs out there. And the reasons why something actually becomes a hit for somebody, when something becomes a hit, 
it always seems to everybody like it was meant to be. <laughs> it's always meant to be. I mean, right? I think it's, about that all the time. Like, all how the time. many times did they mix or do the take and everybody looked at each other and said, oh, this is the hit? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, look at all the hit songs. I, 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 I could think of many, but, but I mean, they just, they all just sound like they were supposed to be hits and then yeah. became hits. It's not the case. They became hits for a variety of, of reasons. Some of them are truly, really just great. And you would hear them for the very first time. And for the very first time, you would say, oh, my God, that is a hit. That is a smash. That is an absolute smash. It's almost like uh, a movie. The first time, there's certain, you know, the first time, you know, like The Godfather, you knew that was, everybody knew that once it was completed and done, everyone knew that was going to be a big hit movie. And, and so there are some songs like that. But the vast majority of them are not like that. They come out and they sort of grow on people. And they get played over and over. And then after you hear anything, like three or four times, it sounds like a hit to you. If you allow yourself to hear something three or four times, if there's anything about it that you kind of like, and even if you'll notice many times, you'll hear something and you won't think anything of it. It's on the radio or somehow you get blasted with this for some reason in just your life. You hear it. You hear it, your music just comes at you. It used to be because you were in your car and radio and whatever. And you really didn't have a choice. But then after a while, you'd go, man, I like that. Well, the first time you hit it, you heard it. You didn't. You maybe didn't even care. Some stuff, some stuff you hear uh, the very first time and you go, oh, I loved it from the beginning. So it just depends. It just depends what, you know, how these things come to be. Why certain songs, I've always fascinated by why certain songs, except the ones that are super obvious, why certain songs became hits, particularly uh, with first-time artists. Yeah. In other words, a lot of times song will become a hit because somebody's already established. So they kind of get a little bit of a free pass. Everyone's going to listen to this new single release from Beyonce because she's Beyonce. But what about the very first one, the very first hit that broke somebody's career? That's the magic thing. You know, after that, you know, it doesn't, it's not that it gets easier, but the songs really do get a, get a pretty good shot. So there's a, in all of this creation and all of this business, there are, uh, hundreds of not thousands of songs that are created for various projects and some point along the way people decide whether or not to put them on the record or don't put them on the record yeah and so talk, and, talk to me about that aren't, because I mean they aren't great songs yeah well i think the the, the two things one is the, the inverse of that always blows my mind too when i hear a song um maybe by an artist that never broke big or a deeper cut and you're like man this song like would be a hit if if it like if, if if all those other things had lined up like it's not esoteric it's not avant-garde it's a great like riff or single or hook and it's just it's a it, it didn't just, happen it just didn't happen and no, none of those other things i guess that you talked about lined up whether it was the right producer or the right label or the right moment in time or the air was blowing from I'm, the southeast instead of the northwest that's <laughs> exactly right the planets align, you know, one way or another. And there are, there are a lot of things that are just awful that become big hits. Actually, I don't think, I don't think I've ever heard a big hit that's awful. Because to me, once it becomes a hit, it's proven itself. Yeah, you know? I agree. It's there hard are, to... Yeah, but there are certainly things that taste-wise you might go, oh, you know, gee, you know, that, that, why is that even a hit? You might wish it wasn't a hit, but the fact yeah. that it's a hit, I guess but it's, it, it's a self-reinforcing. It, yeah. it, it is a hit, you know, and it's, it's doing well. So... Somebody did something right along the way. So, you know, um, you know, that's always, that's the million dollar question. 
in all of the arts, when you're talking about television shows, music, or film, these are the big questions. How can you how can you get a hit? How can you you want to have the biggest hit you can have? The biggest hit movie, the biggest hit TV show, the biggest hit song, the biggest hit record. And there are certainly people that are better at it than others, but no one's got it down for sure. Yeah. Nobody knows how to do it and to guarantee that you're going to have success doing any one of those things. You just kind of do the best you can. And I saw some interview with somebody, whoever it was, De Niro or somebody, and they, and they, and they said, well, hey, you never go about trying to make a shitty movie, but you end up making a lot of bad movies. And you just, everybody's intentions are the best, you know, but they just don't know. You just don't know until it gets out there and you get something actually before the public and they get a chance to see it. And then there's lots of little hurdles along the way that, you know, that, that this particular piece of art has to overcome. And so the cool thing about music is that, you know, a lot of, a lot of, well, it's actually, I think to some degree, maybe true with film and, and TV these days, because there's so many outlets for, for those shows, even shows that aren't successful, they'll, they'll turn up somewhere. But there's a lot of great music that's created that you can sort of repurpose in a sense. And one of the big things that they've done with that has been in the area of what's called sync licensing. So that's become a real moneymaker in the past 10 or 15 years for everybody is the sync licensing business. And, and so that's enabled people to, to generate, you know, uh, real good income because there are now when there used to be 13 channels, you know, now there's 10,000. Yeah. And they all need more. music. They if need audio can, beds. They need opening tracks and you and credit. Yeah. Yeah. And if you count YouTube, there's a billion channels. Yeah. Because everybody on YouTube is a channel. You know, to me, I tried to explain YouTube to, to my, my 12 year old granddaughter. And I said, it's just like a big, it's just like, think of it as um, a network, you know, a network television show. It's a, it's a, it's another network and all the people that put all their videos on are, creators and they're making their own shows and a lot of them need music and so those people pay license fees to use me i mean it's so that's that's a sync license yeah and is so that enormous revenue for folks in the past 10 years and is that part of let's let's pivot now to what you're doing is that the um is that well let's not make any assumptions what are you doing now <laughs> well, that's a, it's, it's slightly, slightly. We're doing something really distinctly different from that in that we're just making at Rocket Songs, we're making songs available to artists who want to record, uh, who are looking for a great original song to record. So in other words, uh, the cover business has become really big on YouTube and has been for a while, where in order to get attention or to create branding, somebody will cover somebody else's hit song and do their version of it. It's kind of what happens on The Voice or American Idol. That's what they do. They sing somebody else's song and the audience votes. And they don't really perform original songs because nobody knows them. So they want to have hit songs. They want to use songs that, you know, they want to do old Beatles songs. And uh, so they'll have Beatle Night. And, and, so, and then everyone's judged on that. And it's really fun. It's fun to hear people sing their versions of a hit song. So that's great. But... At the end of the day, and this is always the example I use as to as to what we do and why I believe we're we're so why we're having the success we're having is at some point you can't well you actually can if you really work at it but it's hard to become uh, you know your your own artist if you're just constantly going to be singing everybody else's songs you're just kind of like a company that's generating income so if you really want to develop yourself as an artist you're going to need a great original song you're going to need a great original song. Now, there's only two ways to do that. 
Hmm. I don't, since the beginning of time, there's two ways to have to find an original song, not do a cover. One is write it yourself, right? Which is a lot of people do. The other is have get it from somebody else. And a sort of a hibernate version of that is you co-write it with somebody else. But basically that's writing it yourself. Co-writing with somebody else is writing it yourself. So there's really only two things you can do. This is the truth for every recorded project since the beginning of time. Somebody has to write the piece. And there's musicians and there's producers and everybody and engineers and everybody that goes in and does all their magic to it. But before you can do anything, there has to be that song and who's going to write it and who's going to create it and who's going to make the decision about what song you're going to record for this record. Uh, so we're another tool that enables that to happen. It's great if you're a fantastic songwriter and you're totally self-contained and you uh, feel as though you can write uh, this material yourself. That's great. Chances are, if you're kind of starting out, which is a lot of our clients, you probably don't have the chops to be a great songwriter right out of the box. Whereas a lot of people are, can be pretty good singers. You know what I mean? I mean, singing doesn't require, you know, uh, sitting down and writing or producing song. You just, you can be a great singer when you're 12 years old and you might need a great song. So you're not gonna be able to write that song. So, uh, but then that holds true with most of the singing public. They're not great songwriters. They're just not. Um, so if you want to go in and you make, make a record and you want to give yourself the best possible chance for success, you need to find a great song. So how are you going to do that? Well, up, up until we came along, your choice was fly to Nashville, fly to New York, fly to Los Angeles, London, wherever, and try and go to where those great songs are. And those songs are in the big publishing houses or with the big independent publishers, and how on earth are you going to get to see those people? You're not. They're not going to take your call because they're going to take those songs and give them to the bigger artists that they're working with that actually have record deals. So you have to be really tenacious and go move to Nashville for a couple of months and just really knock on the doors, and then eventually you could get in if you had any kind of chops at all, if you had a good presentation of yourself as a singer, you could eventually get in to see some of those folks. So uh, a, a quicker way of doing that, an easier way of doing that is we've kind of, uh, we've uh, put together this database of uh, material from all professional songwriters or really good up and comers. And it's all vetted. And you can come and just pitch yourself songs. So you know, I'm a, uh, I'm an alternative pop, female alternative pop artist, and you can go in and uh, use a search engine, search engine, just like search engines are, and in effect, play yourself or pitch yourself that kind of material from some of the best songwriters in the world. People who uh, uh, wanted to get this other catalog that they had that maybe didn't, didn't get recorded by Beyonce, they put it up with us. Or maybe sometimes they're brand new songs because so we're getting so much activity for people. Uh, a lot of people are just giving us their new material now, which is great, the pro songwriters. And, uh, and we put it up on the site and people can come in and pick, pick the song. They can get it on exclusive. They pay a little mm -hmm. more money. They put it on exclusive. They make it just their own. And then they can go in and re-record the song. And now they can make it their own uh, using one of our licenses. And uh, they're sort of typical licensing uh, process that you go through. And our model is really based on an upfront licensing model. And then uh, that's basically, that's basically how it works. You go there to find a great song. So let me say it back to you. I'm a that is all kind of, you know, 
buying a product stuff. Yeah. So I'm uh, I, I I'm the I'm the lead singer of a new band and we've got a couple of originals but you know we know there's nothing great yet and so we want we want a great song. We go into the database, we scroll around, we search, we look at the different genres or feels and we find a song. Um what do we do? Do we like we whip out our credit card and buy the song? Like what what happens? What's the process I go through once I you find You get a, a license. Song? You do put out your credit card. I mean you have to, you know, purchase you have to purchase the license so the licenses range anywhere from uh well the licenses are anywhere we just recently we've sort of revamped it from from thirty dollars to uh, eight hundred ninety five dollars and all sort of parts in between just depending upon exactly what you're getting so you just license the rights to use the song for your recording project it's not giving you the right to go use it in a film but it's giving you the right to do to, to license it to share it uh release it sell it Stream it, all that kind of stuff. Oh, that's incredible! And you put in your credit card. You do put in a credit card, and you just you, you buy a license to, to to license the song to use it in your recording project. That's what you're getting, and we offer uh, three additional products. One is an exclusive. If you hear the song and you really like it, and you don't want anybody else to have access to it for a period of time, you can purchase an exclusive. That takes the song off of our website for a period of time. So it can just, you know, a lot of people like that. They just yeah. say, hey, I'm going to use this for my next project. I'm going to take it off. I don't want anyone else messing with the song right now. So there's that product. And then there is an instrumental. Uh, on some of the songs, we offer the instrumental version. Um, so oh, you wow. can put your vocal on the existing instrumental track and use that. And now that isn't necessarily going to give you the best possible quality because you're putting your voice on a two track instrumental, but it might be good for talent shows or competitions or things like that. Um, so a lot of people like that. And then our high end product is somebody actually licensing the session, the session files from the original producer of the song. So that in a sense puts you in the ultimate driver's seat. You're going to get those files they're going to be downloaded onto your computer and all of a sudden you've got 48 tracks of music or whatever how many digital tracks you've got that you can manipulate any way you want as if wow. you actually were the person that recorded it in the studio wow. this can all be done now lawrence because of the digital age we're living in and the kind of technology you could have done this probably five six years ago but this kind of technology now and all the uh applications that you can use to manipulate tracks on your laptop you still need a good room to record a vocal, you know, no matter what, yeah. and a good mic. But all the rest of it, right? All that background stuff you can do. You can, you can mess around with stuff. Uh, uh, and so that's a license that somebody can get in perpetuity. They're not buying it, but they're getting a license to use it in perpetuity. That's become very popular because it saves you all of the – if the song happens to be in a key that you can work with it's, and you like the production, if you don't, Go hire your own musicians and record it from scratch. That's what people do in the real world. You know, when they hear a great song and Beyonce hears a great song from somebody, well, actually, if she likes the track, she'll just buy the tracks from the, from the people that produced it. <laughs> for the most part, they go in and re-record it with their own musicians. Somebody just pitched them the great song and they go, okay, now I'm going to go record it over or start over again. So we offer, they're called stems, master files, stems, stem files. Right. And so that's a high-end product that goes anywhere from $295 to $895. But you can get, if you just want the license to release the song yourself, that's a 
$30 license and you, you then get the song and you can do with it what you want, but you have to re-record it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's even, even at the $900 level, that does not seem, I mean, if you've got it's some confidence not. and you've got some hustle, that's, that's not a, that's, that's a small investment in yourself. We have a competitor who shall remain nameless, nameless, who sort of was talked about going into business with us and then ended up, they actually do something else. And they talked about going into business with us and then they ended up, not doing that, but then taking this part of what we do and adding it to their website and they're charging like three times more, you know, and, and, uh, and I don't know how good their product is doing, but I mean, yes, it's a really good deal. It's a very good deal. We deal in scale and we're able to do that. And we just explain to people and a lot of our content partners, uh, people that provide us with this content kind of say the same thing. They say, man, you know, some of these tracks I spent thousands on, I go, yeah, but it's just laying around now. Right. I mean, you've got it. You've got the files. They're sitting in your hard drive somewhere. Let's make them available to somebody that can bring it back to life. They can do something with this thing. Truth is, you know, nobody's maybe is banging on your door right now. But by making these tracks available, they this they, they, they it brings them to life again because it's it's new and fresh to somebody else. And it doesn't mean that it's not great or it doesn't work for somebody's project because you haven't done anything with it. It's just that's the nature of things. The the life of a song for a publisher and for a songwriter is about three months. You know, that's really it. Somebody first writes a song. I'm talking about in the professional world. You know, it's three to six months. Everybody writes a new song or they produce a new song and then they want to get it out there. They want to get it plugged into something and they want to get it plugged into a project. If that doesn't happen in three to six months, they're writing new stuff. And that yeah. thing kind of sits and they, they yeah. remember it. But they're writing new stuff, plus trends and things change. And technology changes, and everybody wants the latest, greatest, latest, greatest. But in the wake of all of that creativity, there is still this body of work back here that's really good, that's really good, and that has a lot of practical application to a lot of different folks. Um, and if something's a ballad, it's timeless. It doesn't matter when it was written. Usually the up-tempo stuff becomes a little more uh, trendy. A little dated, yeah. Great yeah. ballad doesn't matter yeah you know i always say to somebody what would be the what would be the what's what what's the best way to try and get a song cut and i you know write would be you know crank out the ballads because they can work pop they can work country they can work hip-hop they can work r&b they can work vintage they can work in any number of ways you know it could be for you know, littered cohen can do a great ballad can do the same ballad that garth brooks can do if it's a really great ballad, right? That's right. When you get into the tempo stuff, it gets a little different. Yeah. You know, and um, say, hey, man, crank out, crank out ballads. Now, that being said, they're the hardest thing to have success with. Why is that? Well, because everyone's looking for tempo. Everyone wants, you know, positive up-tempo country, as I used to joke. And what are they looking for? Well, we got a new female artist, positive up-tempo country, so you can get radio. Yeah, yeah. Everyone kind of everyone kind of wants to feel up and positive, you know. But by the same token, if you want to build a catalog that's going to have application over time, having ballads, you sort of eliminate the genre, the yeah. genre issue, you know. Right, right, right. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're we're coming up on a full hour. I just have a, a couple of very quick final questions for you. Sure. Uh, the first is. Um, do you do you have a stake in the success of the song? Like if somebody if somebody licenses a song through your site 
and God forbid has a hit or uploads it to YouTube and starts generating income, do you have an ongoing interest or are you simply taking a piece of the licensing fee? We take it. We take a piece of the upfront licensing. We take a piece of the upfront licensing fee. And then we have a small, in the event that somebody becomes something becomes like a huge streaming hit from our, from our customers, we have a small piece that we do take, but, but we don't take any piece of publishing. Right. So you don't become a writer. Almost like we take a small piece of sort of like the potential record company. We don't have ownership in anything. We take a small piece of what I guess you could call would have been uh, sort of record company revenue. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's your, what's your sort of, what's your dream state? What's your aspiration for where this goes? Well, ultimately, ultimately that it, I mean, obviously, you know, it, it, it's that it, it becomes a, a, a huge success, but uh, realistically, our goal is to have anywhere from 50 to a hundred thousand members in the short term. Um, and that right now we're in 125 different countries. We get licensed half of our, the interesting thing, half of our licensing revenue, half of our membership is international. So, you know, uh, which is, which is interesting to me and surprising to me, but just goes to show you how, how much, and I've always known this because I've been in the music publishing business my whole life, but how much the rest of the world sort of wants, you know, English speaking pop songs, you yeah, know, and, yeah. which is a lot of our, a lot of our catalog is pop. A lot of our catalog on our site is pop and country and this country just licenses really well for singers. Uh, and, um, and so that's our goal is really, is really just to, is for the product to be, you know, uh, available. And for the company, I think for me would be uh, to get to the point to where when anybody is going to go in and make a record, when anybody's going to make a record that somebody would be there to say to them, Oh, geez, you got to go check out rocket songs. Right. You've got a bunch of great songs. And so that it becomes almost the same as when somebody would say, well, uh, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm, there's this really great book I want to buy. Well, you got to go to Amazon back in the beginning, go to Amazon. They got this online, you know, go buy, go, you know, they got all these books. You can just go in and buy it. And so when anybody's going to make a pro it just sort of becomes a part of the, part of the culture that okay uh you know this is this is the place you gotta go you gotta go check this place out because they got all these songs by all these great songwriters and you know it might be something great you know just it just becomes a part of what you do yeah. if you're gonna do a project because you can't go see all the publishers you can't find everybody it's too hard you can't fly around the world to try and meet all these people but you can go here why not just go check it out my dream would be that there would be a great big button on spotify that said you're looking for a great original song for your next project Go see Rocket Songs because everybody on Spotify needs a great song. I don't care who you are. Yeah, yeah. That would be my great. goal. That's great. Well, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> Jonathan, um, first of all, thank you for making time, but also oh, thank sure. you for the education and for sharing some of your stories. And uh, I wish you the best, man. I love, you know, empowering artists, empowering creatives, um, democratizing uh, th that sort of creative part of the business, bringing more commercial opportunities to people. I mean, what's not to love about that? Um, more working artists is only a good thing for our culture and our society. So thank you for throwing in on that as well. And awesome. uh, it's Thanks. great to talk with you. Thanks, Lawrence. Anytime, buddy. All right. Stay safe. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jonathan Stone and the team at Rocket Songs. Thank you, Ant Taylor and the entire team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. 
Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week, and in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. But she's got your